want to commend you for being here, and I um, trust that Don Riley's prayer will be a prayer that the Lord honors, that you will be awake and uh, stay awake. This morning, we have the privilege of spending some time, spending the next 50 or so minutes talking about uh, the city, the place that is planned for, uh, for all believers. We're talking about your future home. And God is many things, and I don't mean to be irreverent with this statement, but God is the ultimate city planner. And as we begin to get into this, get our arms around uh, the type of city that we will live in one day, uh, I thought maybe I'd just begin with this. Uh, how many of you here uh, have ever been to the Biltmore Estate, North Carolina? Just raise your hand. I've got a picture of it behind me here, um, I think, by George. And we went there with our family a couple years ago. And uh, I was just overwhelmed by sort of the, the immensity of, of this building. As uh, far as my facts tell me, of course, it was re- uh, uh, built by the Vanderbilt family. Actually, I don't think they did any building. I think they paid somebody else pretty handsomely. Uh, 34 master bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, 125 acres of parks and gardens what my kids would call the ultimate crib. It's quite a place. In France, Louis XIV did such a lavish work on the Palace of Versailles that in 1685 there were 36,000 men working day and night shifts uh, to complete this palace. You think of what your house would look like if you had 36,000 men working on it. That would be like the ultimate extreme makeover. Think of what your house would look like if you had one man working on it. That's more likely. And, you know, it's interesting. You know these houses have been around for a long time. People travel great distances, and they stand in line, and they pay whatever they need to pay just to get a glimpse of these houses. We want to peek inside at extravagance, at kind of over-the-top opulence. I start there because today we're going to be looking at our future home. We're going to be looking at at the city of God that's going to come down from heaven. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul, we just sung. How many of you actually knew that hymn? That's brutal. I thought everybody would know that one. I was told to pick a hymn that people like because a couple weeks ago it was abysmal. Sorry, Sandy. Listen to this tape. Uh, We're going to find that John, in a very real way, is, uh, is fixing, as we say in the South, he's fi- fixing to take us on a guided tour of our future home, this great city. And I'll tell you up front that as I spent some time just meditating on these verses before us and, and studying them and trying to get my own arms around them, um, it's, it's, not, it's not an overstatement for me to say that once we get a glimpse of this city that we're going to live in one day, it makes the Biltmore Estate and the Palace of Versailles, it, 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 makes, it makes them look like, like a run-down woodshed in, in the backyard. If you are here last week, you'll know that we're spending uh, these last three weeks talking about heaven. Sandy began last week. I'm number two in this sort of short mini-series and then Sandy will wrap it up next week. And I'll just tell you this, if you didn't know it, um, I know Sandy really well, and I know he likes to finish strong. So um, I would encourage you to be here next week. I would encourage you to bring whatever stray guy you can find, and let's just be here as we uh, kind of wrap up this incredible study. And I would commend uh, those, uh, I would commend to you uh, the tapes or the MP3 downloads because I think that that's something that you're going to want to carry with you or maybe uh, give to a friend. We've seen this before, that one of the dynamics that we need to wrestle with in studying the book of Revelation is uh, John's, if I could put it this way, limitations of language, that uh, he's trying to describe things that we have never seen. And he's using language, trying to draw from those things that are familiar to us, to help us understand what is completely unfamiliar. We'll see that uh, in spades today. He's trying to give us a sense of the majesty and the glory and the sheer splendor of the God that we love and serve 
and I think to some extent make us uh, homesick for heaven. Uh, these verses are packed full of insight. And here's, here's what I want to do this morning. Because we have a, a lengthy passage and it's, it's maybe a little complicated, what I'd like to do is read a portion, unpack some of the imagery, pick it up and read some more of the, of the text. And then what I want to do is spend uh, a chunk of time at the end talking about uh, the difference that these verses make for your life and mine. So that's kind of where we're going. We're going to pick it up with verse 9. We're in chapter 21, and we're talking about the new Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 9. Here's God's word. Let's listen. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The walls of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. Guys, as I read this, let it try to create in you an image of what is being talked about. Uh, The city was laid out in a square. And I lost my place when I looked up and told you that. Um, Thank you. He measured the city with his rod and found it to be 12,000 stata in length and, and width and height and as width, as wide and high as it was long. Here we go, verse 17. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick. It's about 200 feet thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, the third uh, Chalcedony, the, the, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sernelin, uh, the, the seventh crystallite, the eighth uh, beryl, the, the, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophase, the eleventh jacophis, and the twelfth amethyst. I think I got them all wrong and I was consistent. Verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold, like transparent glass. We'll stop there for just a moment. A lot of discussion, brothers, a lot of talk about what heaven will be like. Sometimes when people talk about heaven, they wonder about the living conditions. They wonder about the environment. People have in their mind a picture of heaven, and for some, it's... It's reminiscent of uh, the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. Some people picture their favorite vacation spot. I remember when I was six or seven and I made our our first trip as a family when I was a little kid uh, to Disneyland in California. I thought I had gone to heaven. I really did. A couple spring breaks ago, uh, we took our own family. We have four children. And I had a little different perspective on Disneyland. You start doing, you start doing the math. You know, one, one day, six people, a whole day in Disneyland. For my kids, it was heaven. For me, it was hell on earth. So kids, you better enjoy this. I've just spent your college savings, so you better really enjoy this day. When people talk about heaven, they, they think not, of, not just of what it will be like, but they think of who or what will be there. Can't tell you how many times over the years I've had little kids ask me the question, will my dog be in heaven? Will my puppy be in heaven? I asked that question of my Old Testament prof, Dr. Rich Pratt. His answer was absolutely. He says, anything beautiful and good will be in heaven. So for sure dogs will be in heaven. He didn't say anything about cats because everybody knows cats will never be in heaven. (laughs) Cats, I believe, are part of the curse. At least my cat is. Snuggles. She's demon-possessed. With all that said, with all that said, and the the point that I think John is really trying to make for us today 
is not so much the place or the environment that heaven will be, but the kind of person that we will become once we get there. Or to put it another way, the greatest thing about heaven is who I will be with and who I will become. Of course, wise writers about the spiritual life have always understood this. This is what John is trying to help us understand. And we're going to unpack some of this imagery. Um, and he talks about a bride. He talks about the city. Let's say it again, that it's important as we read these verses and just give ourselves to them to understand that there is a, a significant amount of symbolism being used. I want you to look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. He's actually commenting on the passage that we're reading right now. This is his quote. There is no need to be worried by fastidious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they don't want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Ouch. All the scripture imagery, harps, crowns, gold, and so on, is, of course, a symbolic attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we should lay eggs. Just a little British sarcasm there, I think. But I think what he's trying to help us understand is that in this vision, John is is presenting to us a glimpse of what he saw. And he's drawing again from these things that we know and understand to try to explain those things that we don't know and we don't understand. He begins talking about the bride, the bride. Sandy talked about this last week, so I'm not going to unpack this a lot. But Revelation 21, verse 9, John says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I'll be honest with you this morning and say, was I was sitting over here last week listening to Sandy talk about the glorious bride that I will be one day. I had a hard time getting real excited about that. I'll tell you why. I've always been, I kind of carry with me a basic groom paradigm. You know, I understand groom categories. I don't really understand bride categories. And um, I would imagine that you're the same. So I've been thinking about this. How can I get a room full of guys early on a Thursday morning to get excited about being brides? Think of it this way. This is what John is saying. He's saying there's coming a day where you will be loved completely. You will be treasured. You will be accepted. Just note this. This is Revelation 2. It's a great picture of this. Jesus says through John to the church of Pergamum, he says, I will give you, this is Revelation 2.17, I will give you a white stone with a name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So here's the deal. There's coming a day when you're going to be handed a stone from God. And on it will be a new name. It's going to be known only to you and God. It's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of closeness. And you know how this works. Those of you who are married, um, along the way, you've probably developed a, a pet name, maybe for your wife or she has for you. You can share that with your table a little later, and there'll be some mockery and some laughter, no doubt. It's just a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of closeness. One day you'll stand before God, the God who made you, the God who knows and loves you, and he will hand you a white rock, and on that rock will be a single name. It will be the name, it will be the word that you have most wanted to hear the whole of your life. Courage. Purity. Faithfulness. Jesus said that will be your new name. That'll be who you are. That which you have most longed to be but never really came close to because sin kind of messed things up for you, that will be true of you beyond your wildest imagination. You will be a creature of unimaginable splendor. God will say, I'm going to give you a new name, and that new name is just between you and me. You will know intimacy with God that nobody else will share. Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, 
Not Sandy Wilson, not even the Apostle John who's writing these words. They will have their name, but you will have your name. And it will be known only to you and God. It's a picture of closeness, of belonging. It's a picture of the love that you've craved for all your life that will be yours and that will be extended to you from your Father in Heaven. He will be closer to you than your best friend, than your wife, than your father or your mother or one of your kids. You will be loved completely. You will be accepted. You will be treasured. That is what I believe is behind this idea of the Lamb. And that, to me, sounds better than walking around in a white dress with lace. Number two, he talks about the city. Verse 10. The angel, he says, carry me away in the spirit to a a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down uh, out of heaven from God. It's shown with the glory of God. He talks about a city. He describes a city. And you need to know that as we are given this description of a city, what he's really talking about is you and me. These words that we are reading and and studying, these words are really descriptive of the kind of person that you will become, that I will become in heaven. He's not describing the atmosphere or the decor of heaven. He's describing his bride, his community, and what we will become. We're told the city came down out of heaven from God. The city came down. It's always been interesting to me as I recite the Lord's Prayer, which I do about every week. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But those of us who who recite the the Lord's Prayer regularly, you know, uh, our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. How's How's it go? Your kingdom come, Your will be done, where? On earth, as it is in Heaven. You need to know something. Every time you say that prayer, this is basically what you're saying to God. God, would you, will you make what life is like in heaven, in your kingdom, will you make that kind of life come down here to this earth? Your kingdom come down here. This is not just spiritual language. This is what is called spatial language. There's coming a day where, where the, the reality of the kingdom of heaven is going to become the reality here on earth. See, I think Jesus, in, in instructing his disciples, you know, this is sort of a, a prayer for dummies, a prayer with training wheels on it. He says, if you want to pray, just remember this. This is how uh, you, you need to model your prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth. Jesus never says to his followers, this is what I want you to pray. God, would you get me out of here and take me up there? I call that the Star, the Star Trek prayer. Remember Scotty? He's on some foreign planet. You know, Enterprise, beam me up. Now, Jesus never encourages his followers, you know, beam me up. Get me out of here and take me up there. You know what Jesus says to his followers? He says, I want you to pray that what's going on up here in heaven will come down to the earth. The reality of the kingdom of heaven to come down to this earth. And John is saying there's coming a day when that is going to happen. And and the trumps of this world will be trumped forever as God sets up a new dominion, a new city. And it is coming one day soon. Everything will be new. Let's talk about the city for a few minutes. We're told that it's a city that has high walls. Verse 12. It's a picture of separation. It's a picture of intimacy. And you know how this works. I'd imagine many of you here um, have, have either uh, purchased or, um, or, or will install soon uh, what is now called a, a privacy fence. Those weren't really popular back in our day because neighbors liked to visit in the backyard. But that's not the, the way it is now. You get tired of, of your neighbor behind you looking in as you you know, walk around the house buck naked in the morning just to get a glass of orange juice, you know. You know, you don't, like, you don't like your neighbors or anybody looking into your backyard and seeing what's going on. So you build a privacy fence. Privacy fences are to keep things in and to keep things out. That's kind of the way they work. We're given this description of a high wall. It's, it's a picture of, of separation. It's, it's a picture of intimacy. It's also, it's also a picture of protection. 
A city without high walls is a city that is completely vulnerable. A place that is, is open for attack at any given time. And interestingly, the, the writer of the Proverbs, wise King Solomon, gives us a picture of the need to develop high walls in our own lives in the form of self-control. I've carried this verse with me for years, Proverbs 25:28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. It's a great verse. If you don't tend to your walls, your city is at risk. If you don't develop self-control, your life is at risk. You're just walking around like one big appetite waiting to be filled. And if we had time, and if we had courage and a level of humility, and just talked around the tables today, I'll tell you what we would learn about one another. That our lives have been ravaged by sin and there are high levels of shame and defeat and discouragement because we have not fortified our lives with this discipline of self-control. And the stories that we could tell would be sad stories and I no doubt would be able to add my stories to that. But here's the good news. There's coming a day where we will be in heaven and those high walls will protect us from all evil. In heaven, you will live in a city with high walls. You will be included on the inside. You will have intimate fellowship with the Father and all of his people. We're told that an angel measures the city. This angel has a rod of gold and it measured the length of the walls and the gates. The city is laid out like a, like a square, like, like a big cube, as some scholars will say. I spent a good bit of time thinking about all these dimensions of the city and their symbolism. I read about four or five different scholars, and it was not much help to me because all of those scholars disagreed with each other. And somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, I said, you know what, I I think I'm just going to go for the big idea of what all of this measuring about is about. And here's what I think is about. The measuring is going on because God is making a statement about what he owns. I think that's the point. I am measuring out this area and it's all mine. The number 12 is mentioned again and again. 12, a stat of 144 cubits, 12 times 12. It gives us a picture of perfection, a perfect cube. And honestly, any good a Jew would read this and be reminded of, of the architecture, of the way that uh, the, the Holy of Holies in, in Solomon's temple was laid out. It's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. The inner sanctuary, we're told, was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And the cube here is a symbol of, of perfection and a number that symbolizes wholeness and completion. That is what I think John is trying to drive home with all of this mention of, of measurements and lengths and widths. We're told the city has 12 gates. Each one is guarded by an angel, each one with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It symbolizes the, uh, the continuity of the covenant of God's grace that has worked throughout all generations. And uh, from these gates, I want to draw out one important spiritual principle. And here it is. Heaven is very accessible. Twelve gates. Later, we're told that on no day will these gates ever be shut. In other words, the door of heaven is wide open. Twenty four-hour access to heaven. Some of us in this room, as we reflect on our past, the mistakes that we've made, the regret that we have, we wonder if, if the gates of heaven really will be open for us. Normally, when we, when we uh, talk about the gates of heaven, uh, St. Peter is standing there with some little a joke or some little riddle that we've got to get right in order to get in. There's no mention of Peter in any of these gates. Uh, there's only mention of an angel standing there. What, what's the angel's job? I like to think of these angels as, as God's greeters, his, his doormen. 
welcoming home all the saints, welcoming home all the faithful into the presence of God. And I love it that there are 12 gates because it just drives home the point that God's heart is so filled with grace and His mercy is so accessible that anybody can get in. Jesus says in John 10:19, "Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will go in and 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 uh, and find pasture. He will he will find rest. He will find what is good." We're told in scripture that Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the one that allows us to gain entrance into heaven. And brothers, I'll just tell you this, for centuries the church has been scandalized by the type of people that Jesus will let through those gates. Prostitutes, tax collectors, drunkards, liars, adulterers, thieves, murderers, intellectual snobs who think they have everything together, and people just like you, and people just like me. There is room in my city for you. No waiting lines. Twelve gates. Easy access. And I'll say it again. The access to the gates of heaven is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the point I think John is making. And then John says that uh, the walls of this city, the walls of the city have twelve foundations. And on them were the names of of the apostles, the twelve apostles of the Lamb, uh, 21, verse 14. The foundation is what's underneath. It gives stability. It gives permanence. The twelve apostles, of course, as we learned last week, Judas is out and Matthias has been brought in. We're told in Acts chapter 1. The city, where, uh, the idea of the foundations with the twelve apostles, is give, it gives us this picture. These walls have been tested and been found to be solid and permanent. Paul relays this exact same idea in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. He says, We are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I think it's the same idea here. We just need to know that, that what we have is a heritage that has been handed down to us from those who have gone before those who have endured in the midst of incredible suffering and incredible pain, and in a very real way, that tested faith has been handed over to you. I've been thinking about this recently because I've been speaking at a number of graduation ceremonies. I did one yesterday. And uh, the realization that at any given time, the, the movement of, of Christianity could be broken if we lose one generation. At any time... Christianity will end if we lose a generation. And I say that to say this, that we are, brothers, we are now a part of this foundation for the next generation. And we need to think about the faith that we are handing down to those who are younger. I think especially of your children. I think especially of your grandchildren. I just want to ask you this morning, how are you doing with that? The, the, the quality of faith, the, the, uh, the call to obedience, as you, as you think about what you're handing down to the next generation, what does that look like? Are you adding to the beauty of the gospel and the brilliance of God's character, or are you taking away from it? What are you handing down to the next generation? So we're told about the city, we're told about the walls, the gates, the foundation. And then we see not only the size and the shape of the city, but we are told a little bit about some of the, the materials that are placed in that city. We're told that the walls are made of jasper. Imagine a, a diamond just shining like the sun. The city of pure gold, pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls decorated with every kind of precious stone. Twelve gates made out of twelve pearls, each gate made out of one pearl. That's a big old pearl. That's a big old oyster. And we're going to have to just invoke our imagination because John nor I can articulate with words what he's really seeing. The scope, the extravagance of this new city, streets of gold like glass, gives us a picture 
where everything in the assembly, everything that is coming before God is being placed at His feet. The best of everything in the world is now being presented to Jesus. You know, on this side of heaven, we read of stories, people who have way too much money, and the way they spend their money on just stupid stuff, kind of throwaway stuff, you know, $12,000 gas grills and stuff, cars and watches and toys and whatnot. And we think of that and we think, man, what a waste. What a waste. But there's coming a day where you could say all of the cosmos, all things that are created, will be obsessed with giving God the glory that is due Him. And nothing in the cosmos will be too extravagant for Him. Giving God the glory He deserves. Now here's what I want to do, and we're going to have to go really fast uh, to get uh, done today. But I want to read the rest of these verses, beginning with verse 22 here in chapter 21. And then I want to pull out some things that... uh, that we need to take with us um, in terms of the kind of people that we will become in heaven. Here we go. This is verse, verse 22. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the king, kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. We'll come back to that. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not see the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. We'll stop there. I want to touch on, as we pull things together, I want to touch on three truths, three things that will be true of you in heaven according to these verses. I'll give you the first one, and it may surprise you just a little bit. In heaven, in heaven, you will be astoundingly productive. Sometimes people wonder, when I get to heaven, what will I, what will I do? It's kind of an embarrassing thing to talk about, but I think our, mostly, mostly our fear is that when we get to heaven, that we'll be bored. A lot of people think about heaven as like an eternal retirement community. They do. And that leads us to kind of being somewhat ambivalent. You know, we're going to be singing all the time. And, I, you know, I like singing as much as the next guy. But after singing for 30 or 40 billion years, I might want a little rest, too. So here's the question. Well, what will you be doing in heaven? Verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 3, gives us a few clues. I want you to look at this and think about it with me. No longer, John says, will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Scroll down to the end of verse 5. This is one phrase. And they will reign forever and ever. What does that involve? What does that look like? Serving Him. Reigning with Him forever and ever. I used to kind of picture sitting on this throne waiting for something to happen. I don't think that's the picture that John is giving us. And we don't have time to look at it, but way back in the garden, the book of Genesis, in the garden, God created human beings in His image and He created us to have what is called dominion over all the created order. That is, to reign in cooperation with Him over creation. That's how one theologian put it. 
We're made to work and be fruitful. We are designed to be co-regents with God. That's what this verse is talking about. Every one of us has the need to grow and to learn and to contribute and to be stretched. And some of us, even on this side of heaven, we have a hard time even going on vacation because we go on vacation and we feel worthless because we're not doing anything. We're not producing anything. I mean, why rest? Why relax on the beach reading a John Grisham book when you can be at home generating income, we think to ourselves, or involved in some kind of a project? Well, I've got some good news for you. That's not going to be your frustration in heaven, that you'll be bored. You will be involved in heaven, in the words of one writer, in the ceaseless creative activity of Jesus and his friends. Isn't that good? Just note this. One of the promises of Scripture comes from Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. And you remember this. The master gives to three servants uh, a certain portion of talents, and he asks them to, to do something with them. And he comes back, and the master commends two of the servants who get it right. And this is what he says to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of what? Many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The master returns and he says to his servant, Hey, way to go. I gave you a few things to do and you really were faithful in that. Now I'm going to up your responsibility level. I'm going to give you more to do. More responsibility compared with what you're doing right now. It's interesting. Some people wonder, you know, in heaven, will there be... Will there be intellectual challenge for me to wrap my mind around? Will there be adventures that require greatness of spirit? Will there be uh, the need for for me to be uh, strong in character and in my will? Will there be be a place for creative, compelling um, communication back and forth with other people? Yeah, there will be. There will be. More than we could ever imagine. I want you to look at this uh, quote from Dallas Willard from his book, Divine Conspiracy. And this is a little heady, but I think it says it very well. In heaven, he says, you will know the fullness of function, the unending creativity involved in a cosmos-wide cooperative pursuit of a created order that continuously approaches, but never reaches, the limitless goodness and greatness of the triune personality of God. That's what you're going to be doing in heaven. So, on this side of heaven, I'm just going to encourage you. Grow as much as you can. Develop your skills. Develop your abilities. As you go off to work today, be diligent. And here's why. Because what we're doing on this earth is like an internship. It's like vocational tech training. For what we'll be doing in heaven. Your real job, what you're really suited for, what you're really gifted for, is not just to make a buck in this life, is to add to the dimension of the beauty of God's creation as you serve Jesus and all of his friends in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? In heaven, you'll be amazingly productive. Here's the second thing. You'll be morally flawless. How many of you, as you see here this morning, would be willing to admit, I'm not even going to ask for a hand raise on this because I don't think I get many. How many of you would be willing to admit that you have at least one sin in your life that is causing you major problem? How many of you are sitting next to a guy who has a bunch of those? Yeah. This is what the John wrote in his gospel, same John who's writing these words, John 3.19. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their days were, their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. He says that human beings prefer darkness, gravitate toward darkness more than the light. And you know, that, that's, that is a synopsis of my life. I, I have plenty of areas of my life um, that I don't want you to know about. There's a sense of defeat. There's a, a sense of, of spiritual inertia and in how I, I, uh, I cave into sin far more than I want to. 
I look at my own desire to be the kind of man that God wants me to be. And for me, that process is like one step forward and eight steps back. It's just, it's just painful. I remember a long, uh, some time ago, maybe I was in my 30s at this time, when I thought this, that when I get to be my age, I'm in my mid-40s, that by the time I get to this age, I'll pretty much have things figured out and I'll be doing really well. And I'm in my mid-40s, and i tell you what's true of me. I think I'm more of a mess now than ever. I really do. I, I am more aware of just my own struggle with sin, my own depravity, the lust of the flesh, my need to cling to grace. I am more aware of that now than I ever have been in the whole of my life. Sometimes I feel like I'm moving backwards more than I'm moving forwards. But a day is coming when all that will be changed. Not just in my life, but in yours. Look at these verses. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need for no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Chapter 22, verse 5. There will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. There will be no more darkness, no more living in darkness. Your character will be perfected. What will that be like? God says, I'm making everything new, and that includes you. You will, have, you will have a new heart. And you will effortlessly love Jesus and all of his friends. You will have a new mind. And the only thoughts that you will think are thoughts of moral beauty and noble goodness. You will have a new mouth. And the only words that you speak are words that will bring praise to God and will edify other people. You will be fully known. You will be treasured. You will be perfected. I'll give you a picture of this. Uh, earlier, we talked about some of those precious jewels, those costly jewels. It might help you to know that most of those are really taken from Exodus chapter 28, where those jewels are actually uh, were actually placed on what was called uh, the, the breastplate of judgment. The priest would wear it when he would go into the Holy of Holies. And this is what Moses says. This is uh, Exodus 28, uh, verse 29. So that Aaron will bear the people on his heart when he enters the presence of the Lord. The idea of, of those stones representing the people of God, which is to say that you, you will be carried close to the heart of God. You will be near to him. You will matter to him. Some of us here this morning at times really struggle with uh, just an overwhelming sense of inferiority or kind of with that imposter syndrome. Our great fear is that somebody will find out how incompetent we really are. And we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to somebody else, their gifts, their looks, their earning power. See, in, in heaven, God's great, get this, in heaven, God's great treasure will not be these precious rocks or minerals. His great treasure will be his community, his bride. His great treasure will be you. Not precious stones, but precious sons and daughters, you and me. Not flawless jewels, but flawless hearts. You will be astoundingly productive. You will be morally flawless. How many of us this morning are looking forward to that moment? And here's the last one. This is so good. You will be completely fulfilled. Just scroll back here to Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. This great image. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. And you remember this from the book of Genesis. Uh, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is a picture about fulfillment. Clear water and, and fruit. Twelve different kinds of fruit. There's that number twelve again. 
Some will say that this kind of points to uh, the food service that we will have when we're in heaven. Clear water and a whole lot of fruit. Uh, some of you are kind of disappointed. You were hoping for really good pizza. I don't know. Uh, you need to understand this is, this is not a statement about the menu that we're going to have in heaven. It's a statement of fulfillment. You will be completely fulfilled. In this world, on this side of heaven, because we live under the curse, we have desires, we have longings, but those desires and those longings are never fully satisfied. We dream, but those, those dreams go unfulfilled. And many of this room just struggle with this whole issue of contentment, and we've bought into the thinking that if I can just have more, more money, more sex, more, more, then I'll be happy. In the words of one Christian leader, we spend our whole life climbing the ladder, and we get to the top, and we realize the ladder is leaning against the wrong building. We think if I could just have a little bit more, and then we get it, and then we're not satisfied. Maybe some of you are there right now. He says you assess the, the discontent in your own heart. Uh, you would say it's, it's probably causing you to uh, consider gratifying a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. For some of you, it has to do with crossing sexual boundaries. You, know, you don't feel like your wife is fulfilling your needs. She's not understanding. She's hard to love. And so you're justifying, um, you know, maybe spending a lot of time on, in pornography or flirting with somebody at the office or worse. And there are desires, there are longings that as men that we will experience on this side of heaven. And maybe part of your prayer this morning is, is to say, Lord, would you help me? Would you give me the strength of character to be more than a walking appetite that's waiting to be satisfied? But as you do, as you are willing to live with some of this postponed gratification, I want you to remember this. There's coming a day, brothers, when every desire that you have will be met completely. You will be fulfilled. Later in Revelation 20, earlier in Revelation 21, it is said that God himself, to him who is thirsty, we're told, to him who is thirsty, God says, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. Which is to say, all of your your, your longings, your, your need for intimacy, significance for community, for beauty and love will be met, will be satisfied. That day ain't here yet. And so in the meantime, we, we live with that tension of having desires, longing for those desires to be met, but having the conviction that we will not satisfy those desires in, a, in, in an illegitimate way. We're celebrating this morning who we will be in this new city. You will be amazingly productive. You will be morally flawless. You will be completely satisfied as you um, partner with God and add to the beauty of his creation. And there's one other thing that you need to know about this great city. And it's this. Not everybody will be in it. Brothers, there are, there, are, there are people in your life right now. Maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a work partner. Maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your golf group. Maybe it's a father or a mother or a child. And they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And you know that those gates will not be open for them. And what was true in Noah's day 
where the judgment of God came and the door of the ark was shut and everybody on the outside perished. It will be that way in the end, in the final judgment. And so this morning as we celebrate just a sense of awe of this great city that's going to come down from heaven and this incredible person that we will become, let us not lose sight of those who will know none of that because they are far from Christ. They've never put their faith in Him. And maybe one of your takeaways is to pray, Lord, would you, would you bring one or two of those people to my mind that I might pray with them, that I might try to connect with them? Last thing. C.S. Lewis, in his book Chronicles of Narnia, gives us a picture of this final quest, and it will end with this. He's trying to capture for us what heaven will be like uh, from kind of an earthly perspective. And look at what he writes here. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all live happily ever after. But for them, those who trusted in Christ, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. And now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That, my friends, is a picture of what is waiting for us one day. So in the meantime, hold on to hope. Hold on to integrity. Hold on to the character of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible picture of this city that is coming down from heaven for the gates that have swung wide and are open for us, for the foundation that is secure, for the brilliancy of this city, which speaks of your glory. We know that in this city there will not be the need for uh, any sun or moon because your brightness will occupy the entire place. There will be no temple there because your, your presence will fill every inch of your city. And we thank you for the promise of the kind of men that we will become once we enter it. We long on this side of heaven to be ready for our real job, our real assignment that will be given to us a new name and a new job description. Prepare us for that even as we labor today. And God, give us a burden for those Men in our lives who uh, will not be in this city apart from uh, true confession, repentance, and them trusting in you. And though we celebrate, we also leave this room with an appropriate burden for them. We want them to enjoy what we will surely enjoy. God, I would pray for every man in this room that if there's one man in this room who has never put his trust in Christ, that this would be the day. That this picture of heaven would be so captivating that he would want to be nowhere else for eternity. Thank you for the grace that you have given us and we thank you for the power that we have that will help us to endure as we wait for this city to come down from heaven. We pray for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers, have a great day.